North Carolina hasn't legalized the growth or sale of marijuana yet, but the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians on the Koala Boundary are a sovereign nation. In 2021, the Tribal Council approved the growth and potential sale of medicinal marijuana for tribal members, and just last month opened their program to anyone living in North Carolina. You have to physically go to their dispensary. So the program says you have to be there in person to buy it. And right now, because North Carolina has not legalized marijuana, it's technically illegal to take it off of the boundary. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guest today is Jennifer Emmert, an investigative reporter with WLOS-TV. She recently produced a three-part series for the station about the tribe's program and the prospects for statewide legalization. We talk through her reporting, including some tension within the tribe about the program's fiscal responsibility and what the impact of state legalization might mean for the region's CBD and hemp industries. If you've spent any time on Tinder or Bumble, you know this scenario. You're on a blind date and it goes horribly wrong. I mean, horribly in a way you just can't get out of. That's the premise of Some Notes on Dating During Outbreak, a new stage play from Asheville playwright Travis Lowe premiering through the Sublime Theater. It's got a fancy restaurant, two hopeful people, and an entrapment by quarantine. What more could you ask for? Some Notes on Dating During Outbreak opens July 13th and runs nine performances at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and information, go to thesublimetheater.org. My conversation with Jennifer Emmert happened at the end of June, when the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians still hadn't opened its dispensary, nearly two years after approving its medicinal marijuana program. I began our conversation by asking Jennifer what inspired her to look into the program to begin with. I think we started really back in 2018 when the CBD industry started here in Western North Carolina. And I did a number of stories back then about the businesses and some of the regulations and putting CBD in food. And so I think that kind of, we realized that this is a growing emerging industry here in Western North Carolina. So as things have shifted towards marijuana, then we've also shifted our focus and just thought this was an important topic for the region. So when they authorized the program several years ago, uh, we've been watching it and realized things were starting this past fall. I think in November, they did their first kind of bigger harvest when you um, say the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Yeah, you, when you said they, like the, you're saying the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Right. Can you give a little context about how the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians are allowed to have a cannabis program, whereas maybe other entities in the state aren't? And are there other tribes in North Carolina that also have cannabis programs? They are, of course, a sovereign nation. So they set their own laws. Tribal council authorized this program. I believe it was back in like 2020, 2021. They first authorized it and they've been growing for 
at least a year out there on tribal lands. That's part of the program is that it stays to tribal lands because that's where it's authorized. North Carolina has not passed any law, although we're watching very closely to see what's happening in the legislature as well with the state now considering a medical marijuana program and even legalizing cannabis just in North Carolina. And so we'll I be think getting that's into our that. interest in all of it because it's a state issue and we've got it happening right here in our backyard. And I'm not aware that any other tribe has authorized this in North Carolina yet. They're the first to do it. So if they're the first, now give some context. You said this happens on tribal land. Who has access to this program as it was designed? Is it only members of the Cherokee Indians who are allowed to access this program if they have medical clearance to do so? Who has access to this? Well, and that's how they started out. They wanted to roll it out carefully. And I think by this point, they had anticipated that they would already be selling at their dispensary. That has not happened yet. I understand in talking to the Cannabis Control Board out there, there's two arms, really, to this program that the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is doing. It's their operational arm, which is run by Koala Enterprises, LLC. And then the Cannabis Control Board is more of the regulatory side of things. And so those two entities work in conjunction to create this program. And did, were both these entities created by the tribal council? Correct. It is a tribe-run program. The tribe owns Koala Enterprises, LLC. They also control the Cannabis Control Board. It is made up of different members, some members of the community, some members of the tribe, some experts that help them with the regulatory process for this program. And so with those two entities working, they have set up the parameters for the program and how you qualify. You must be 21 years old. You must meet, they call it 18 criteria that's listed on the Cannabis Control Board's website to be able to enroll in the program. It's really 20 different conditions that you could have. So to be clear, it's not so much that there are 18 separate criteria. It's that there are conditions that are laid out in terms of medical conditions that you have to be certified or clear to have to be suffering from. I brought the application with me today. It's a three-page application that they've given us a copy of. You have to have a doctor sign off on it. You don't necessarily have to give them your entire your medical history, but you've got to at least give them some information from the doctor that says you meet one of these criteria. Now, now these criteria, some of these seem to be genuine maladies, disorders that would be easily quantifiable, that you could, that somebody could certify. Some of them seem very loose, like trauma or anxiety that would, at least to my eye, have a low bar of entry. Am I wrong in reading it that way? No, you're correct. Some of them are a little bit of a lower bar where others are a little more stringent, a cancer diagnosis or something like that. But yes, as long as you have a physician that says you meet one of these conditions, then you qualify. You send them your information. They review it. They have a doctor that goes through these forms and looks at them. 
And they're in the process now. I believe they have close to 200 applications that were tribal members, but they are now accepting North Carolina resident applications. What we haven't established yet is where does this cannabis come from? It's one thing to set up the entities, the legal entity and the guidelines. Where, who's growing the pot for this? They run a seed to sale program, so they are growing it as well. So they take the seed and they have a site, which they call the Cooper's Creek site, which is a parcel of land that is not directly connected to the boundary by roads, but it is tribal land. And that's where they grow. They will process and package and then take it to their dispensary, which is on the boundary. And if people are familiar with that area out there, it's the old bingo hall. So you've been and you've seen this plot of land. Yes, I have been out to the property. We have not been allowed beyond the gate for whatever reason. We've been to several tribal council meetings where Koala Enterprises LC has said they are interested in showing members of the tribe the program, members of the community the program. But every time we've made a request to actually physically be on the property for whatever reason, we haven't been given access. Now, you said this entire enterprise started in 2021. So that's relatively recent to then be opening it up, it seems, to the entire state. Did tribal council talk about that being part of their plan from the very beginning? And again, reiterating, it's a sovereign nation. They can do what they want. I was just wondering if that was part of public disclosure of the plan. That has always been a part of the plan. They first wanted to roll it out to tribal members to offer them the opportunity first. And then the plan always was to also offer it to North Carolina residents because they, they feel in talking to some of the tribal members out there, tribal council, they feel that this is a program that they wanted to share. And do people have to physically, let's say you live across the state or anywhere, you have to physically go on to tribal land to their dispensary to receive this, right? That is part of the program. So you have to physically go to their dispensary, which is located on the tribal land. They do not set, they cannot sell via mail or anything like that online. So the program says you have to be there in person to buy it, to present your patient card that you've qualified for, and then you can purchase. And right now, because North Carolina has not legalized marijuana, it's technically illegal to take it off of the boundary. So anything can happen on tribal land that the tribal council mandates or allows, but once you come off that land, North even Carolina laws prevail. And so if you can purchase legally there on the tribal land, but once you step back into North Carolina, then North Carolina law takes over. And as we've talked to some of the law enforcement in that area, they are going to enforce North Carolina law. So I, this sounds like it would be very similar to, let's say you bought marijuana in Colorado or California and went to a dispensary there and bought some products there, you can't legally take it out of those states and put it into states that's not where it's not legal. That's correct. So North Carolina law prevails in North Carolina law. And while they have decriminalized some small amounts of marijuana, for the most part, 
marijuana remains illegal in North Carolina. Now, you said they've opened, just opened up the application process to people anywhere in the state. Do you have to be a North Carolina resident to apply? Yes, you do have to show proof of residency for North Carolina to be able to apply. They have not opened it up to other states yet. What's the process once you apply? Does it happen quickly? Has anybody from outside the boundary been now accepted in and been allowed into the dispensary? We just recently were able to go out and talk to the Cannabis Control Board again. Once again, they're the regulatory arm of this process, and they have have now received their equipment to produce these patient cards. So we saw they've got a camera on site and some computers. I understand in talking to them that the dispensary does not yet have the computer equipment on their side yet that will be able to read the card analyze that, okay, this person is qualified to purchase, their card is valid, and then it tracks how much you buy because they do have some limits on the amount of product that you can buy so that you're not reselling it. Just out of curiosity, I've been to a dispensary in California and just to see what it's all about there. And they have a range of different products and they're not manufacturing it on site. It's not their own. With the Eastern Band of Cherokee, is every bit of the product that's in the dispensary, does it come from their farm? That's the choice that they've made. And it's very similar to North Carolina's medical marijuana law as well, where they're going to require those state licensees who get a state license to run a seed to sale program, that's essentially it. When you choose to do a seed to sale program, then you're producing everything. So from what I understand, what we've been told about what has been produced at that Cooper's Creek site, they have both biomass and bud flower product on site. I was just wondering I understand if- that nothing has been necessarily packaged yet. I see. So there there isn't like gummies or things like that are available yet. That's what you would use the biomass to create. So you can use the biomass to create consumables, which could be gummies, a brownie type product. They can make a range of products. But they haven't yet. From what I understand and talking to the licensing that has been done so far by the Cannabis Control Board, they have not yet produced any type of product. You mentioned the medical marijuana law, and we've, you, you alluded to what's happening or talks happening in the legislature. I want to get to that in a little bit. But one of the things I found really interesting in your coverage, and I want you to expound on it a little bit, is that the tribal council's leader, Sneed, they want to audit the tribe's medical marijuana program. They're the ones who who have granted the approval for this. They set the whole thing up and now they want to audit it. It seems under the suspicion that there's some malfeasance happening. Yes. So back in May, Principal Chief Richard Sneed sent a referendum to tribal council calling for forensic audit. And then they met at the June 1st tribal council meeting and talked a little bit about this. And I thought it was interesting, and many of the tribal council members weren't necessarily against doing an audit. The question was, did it need to be a forensic audit? Because there have been questions raised about how much money has been spent to date 
And then a request that has been flowing back and forth through tribal council for additional millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars that Koala Enterprises LLC says they need to be able to continue the program. So Koala Enterprises says they, I think they asked for it was like a $64 million loan, something to that effect. Tribal Council approved this loan and Richard Sneed vetoed this approval based on what? Based on concerns about how that money was being spent and how the tribe was backing that loan. There have been questions that have come up in tribal council about keeping gaming money separate. Remember, federally, marijuana is not legal. And the gaming casino falls under some federal regulations. And there were several tribal council members that believe memos from the Gaming Commission have said directly that money from gaming revenues cannot be used to fund marijuana, which is illegal, according to the federal government. So is the tribe worried that if the two were commingled, it would threaten the status or the legality or the sustainability of their casino? Yes. And I think that's what they were trying to make sure that those monies were kept separate, or at least those are the concerns that we heard from several tribal council members and the chief in in doing what he did. He also just wants a better understanding from what we've talked to him on where the money is being spent and what it's being spent on. I think they put out an initial proposal, a request for proposals, to construct what is out at Cooper's Creek. It was supposed to originally have been glass greenhouses, and then that changed to what you see out there today. And what we've reported in our stories are these plastic-type hoop houses that have also then had to be winterized to an extent, where they're able to sustain our winters, and they're able to keep growing year-round. And there were some questions over the cost of those entities, the hoop houses, just in general, that when you do the math, according to what Qual Enterprises LLC has put out in kind of some of their budget statements, is that one hoop house costs $66,000, and it's plastic. So the chief was questioning how something like that could cost that much money. I see. And he says there are some redundancies built in some of the information that he has been given from Koala Enterprises LLC. He's asked for more information when it comes to just salaries, the cost of items. Since it is owned by the tribe, he feels that he should be able to get that information is there, and are, hasn't gotten really a detailed breakdown. Is there pushback on that? This is entirely internal to the tribe. This isn't like the IRS or the Treasury Department or some other federal in, bureau invest, of investigation. It's just all within the tribe. Is, the, is Richard Sneed getting pushback on that? I think... He has requested some of these documents, and they just haven't been given. We've requested some of those documents and have not received them. I think some council members have requested further information and not received it. 
They've been giving this one sheet, which is like a breakdown, which really just shows salaries in general. And they're, what they're asking for is more detailed salary information. Who is this position? What is the kind of description of that position? And then what is the pay scale for that position? They're wanting some more of the more intimate details and you, they're not getting it, just, even though they're owned by the tribe. I think what the chief has called it is just fiscal responsibility in making sure that it is the tribe's money. It is tens of millions of dollars that are being spent on this program. Yeah, how and could he it? He just wants to make sure that money is being spent judiciously because it is the tribe's money. They're looking at this as another enterprise, much like the casinos. And so they want, in a respects, they want it to be a health asset for the community and the tribe and the people of the area. But they also look at it as a business. And it is a business. It's interesting. And so that they the- want to make sure it's operating well. The Overlook is going live. My first live podcasting event features a conversation with Asheville Symphony Music Director Darko Buderitz. Black Asheville leaders tell us what they think about the city's commitment and progress toward reparations, and the resonant rogues will talk about and perform songs from their upcoming record. That's three episodes of The Overlook in one evening. The Overlook Live happens Wednesday, September 27th at the Wortham Center. Tickets will be $30 when they go on sale to the public, but anyone joining my Patreon campaign in June gets in free. Go to patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. And speaking of the legislature, so from what I understand, there were two Senate bills up for consideration around marijuana, one for recreational use, one for medicinal use, that the one for medicinal use is the one getting some more traction. Can you tell us where we're at in terms of the legislative conversations around legalizing marijuana? Right. That's Senate Bill 3. And it was introduced actually last year and passed the Senate and went to the House and didn't go anywhere. It is back this year. The Senate took it up again. It is a Senate-led bill, and it has passed the Senate and is back in the House. It has been in the House Committee on Health since May 18th. They have had one information session on it, but they haven't voted on it. It's got to make its way through several other committees. It did clear that crossover day hurdle that happens with legislation. If passed, it could go to the governor's desk this year. The question is, what is the holdup? We recently talked with State Senator Julie Mayfield as we hosted a roundtable. She said she's not quite sure what the holdup is, that There might be some trading that's happening at the state level, and she felt confident that this might be passed this year, but she said it's uncertain at this point. Have you seen the way the language is written with the medicinal use of the state, the legalization at the state level, would it mirror the the restrictions and requirements and the checks and balances that the EBCI has? Yes, the state's program is very similar, and it would have some conditions you would have to meet to meet a medical criteria. It will take some time to ramp up a state program, just like it has out on the Koala Boundary. In talking with Senator Mayfield, it's at least maybe two years. Even if it would pass now, this year, 
you're at least two years away from any type of sales within North Carolina because there's first you've got to then set up who gets these 10 licenses that exist um, set up by the program. There are different boards. What would the state patient card look like? There are a lot of things to set up government-wise. Will this fall under? Will it be DHS? Will some of it fall under Department of Ag? Do they have the staff to handle that? You've got to like ramp up some of this. Yeah. And you just, it will take some time. You just said something and I'd heard this before. I'm glad you brought this up. You said there are 10 licenses that would be granted. Does this mean 10 individual dispensaries or 10 licensees that could open up any number of dispensaries under their license? How would that work? 10 licenses to grow. And again, we talked a little bit about what a seed to sale program is. That's taking it from seed, growing it, Then you're harvesting that, producing it into a product, and selling it in a dispensary. Those entities would have to do that right now. The only people legally growing marijuana in North Carolina, from what I understand and from talking to the agriculture department, is what's happening out on the boundary. Is one of the reasons that it would take two years minimal is just because of the time to set up a seed to sale program and to cultivate, to have the marijuana that is mature enough to then cultivate and then turn into a product. That's part of it. And then part of it is these other departments and agencies and what the card would look like and then establishing boards for governing all of this and handling the licensing and making sure that everybody is following what they need to follow, the testing of product before it can go to market. It is a very regulated type of industry. That does, and I think that's what Senator Mayfield's concern was, and she voted against the measure last year and then for it in the most recent legislative session, is because 10 growers across the state You've got to meet what are some pretty exorbitant fees and licensing to be able to do it. It takes out the smaller growers in our region, really, that have been growing hemp now for several years. They just can't meet the demands that are required and then the licensing fees, and you've got to have some capital behind it. So that lends itself to bigger programs. I think what Senator Mayfield explained to us in a story we did back in our Seeing Green series is that she feels that at some point the smaller growers will be able to get involved. It may be several years down the road once the program has been established. And I understand the state's concern somewhat in trying to keep it reined in to start a program in the state of North Carolina so that you maintain quality control. And I think that's why they're establishing it this way. What would be the effect on the EBCI program if legalization happens statewide? They have lobbyists as well. And they are hoping for one of those licenses that we've already reported that. Why do they need a license if they can be a sovereign nation and run it anyway? They want to be able to sell to the state. And not just keep and their product just, on the boundary. They mm. want to be able to, they've already got a program that's up and running and they're essentially a couple of years ahead of where the state would be. So they could theoretically, since they're already ahead and running a program, if they were granted such a license, they could gain a lot of market share in this region. And just, but just because they're, they're already so far ahead of the game. 
essentially, potentially, it would depend on where those other licenses are given as well. So what's the next steps that we're looking for here in terms of the program statewide? So we're watching the legislature. They're in session right now. I've heard a couple different things from some of our state lawmakers, how long this session will go. It could potentially go into maybe mid-July. I think they've got all the way until August. I'm told that they could cut things short in July and come back for kind of a mini session in August. Whether this would happen before they decide to end things in July is anybody's guess at this point. From talking to Senator Mayfield, they're still dealing with some budget issues, and that has taken up a majority of the time. There have been some other big pieces of legislation that also have come to the legislature this year. Whether this is really not on the front burner for members of the House, they let it go last year. So whether they'll kick the bong down the road, not to have a pun here. (laughs) Is there anything we haven't talked about with your reporting or that you think is important for people to see contextually around that? I think this is something we're continuing to follow because I think that just given the CBD industry and the hemp industry here, and that's another piece of legislation that is interesting too. It's House Bill 563. And this was just talked about like in recent weeks, they've added to it and it's regulating the hemp industry. And kind of some of those products that are out there now, some question is we've talked to kind of attorneys and worked on this Seeing Green series that we've done. Why do you even need to go out to EBCI Boundary when you can buy product that is hemp derived that has THC in it? Right here in Asheville. What do they call it? THC nine eight or there's Delta I mean, eight, eight, Delta eight, Delta nine, Delta ten. The THCA products. These products have 0.3 THC in them that is derived from hemp that has some of the same psychoactive effects as marijuana. So why, when you can walk into a shop here in downtown Asheville? Would you go all the way out to the boundary to buy medical marijuana when you can essentially buy a very similar product, just hemp derived here in town? Is that one of the reasons some legislators want to tighten regulations on the hemp industries because of the Delta 8s and 9s? That's right. And that's what we're seeing with this House Bill 563. It's 17. It started out as a couple pages, and now it's up to about 17 pages of regulations that now take a look at the shape that you can create with the gummy. How do we keep it out of kids' hands? Because that's been an issue across the state that we've heard from law enforcement. The kids have got it, brought it to school shared it with friends at school, keeping it off of school property, making it just like a tobacco product on school property and putting in some fines with that. That's what this House bill does. It didn't make crossover day, but it could be tacked on to something else and still pass this year. There, There is now this push to regulate, and a lot of other states have done that as well, regulated these Delta 8, Delta 9 products, now requiring you to hire an independent lab 
and show proof of the product, what the ingredients are, that it meets 0.3 THC level, how you could advertise it, who you can sell it to, you the, you going to have to record and ask for identification and show that somebody is 18 years or older to sell it to them. A lot of the shops have been doing some of this regulation themselves, but we had one shop owner tell us in our series that, you know, it's really kind of the wild, wild west out there when it comes to these hemp products. And they don't, they haven't had a lot of regulation. And we have so many CBD shops around here that I imagine some of them would not be in a position to do the testing that you're talking about legislators wanting to see. It's also some licensing for them, requiring them to have a license to operate a shop and then to distribute as well. So it could be some additional fees for shops and a $100 fee based on each location that they have. We know a number of shops in town have multiple locations. So some additional fees for that. Also like laying out civil penalties and some strict civil penalties for those who would not follow these regulations. And it does give everybody a little bit of time to come into compliance. According to what's been drafted right now, these regulations wouldn't go into place until July 1st of 2024. Our new First Look newsletter gives you just a handful of daily headlines from around the local media landscape to get you on your morning. We also have a weekly newsletter devoted to all things The Overlook that hits you every Friday. Both are free and available at podavl.com newsletter. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. I really want to thank my guest today, Jennifer Emmert of WLOS-TV. You can find her Going Green series at WLOS.com. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are available every Monday through Thursday morning. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook. <laughs>